I think the other interesting thing, I mean, in North Carolina specifically is the uh, recent tradition of like actual bipartisan energy policy that that advances the state towards a, a cleaner system. And especially when the the national discourse is that, you know, clean energy is is framed as a super divisive partisan divide or chasm that, you know, can't be crossed. I think at the local and state level, that's absolutely not the case. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Listeners, welcome to the 67th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're featuring a guest with whom you've probably read some of their work over the past five to six years as one of the foremost reporters covering the clean energy transition and doing so even before it was cool. Our guest also has a tie to North Carolina, so stay tuned to find out who this guest is in the shade of blue they pay allegiance to here within the state. But as always, before we get into the details, we've got a few updates to share. First on the list is the carbon plan. To catch everyone up, back in October, House Bill 951 was signed into law. The comprehensive bipartisan energy legislation included language directing the North Carolina Utilities Commission to develop a carbon plan to map out how the utilities are to reach the goals of 70% carbon reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. With that directive, the North Carolina Utilities Commission opened a docket last November kicking off the process stating that Duke would be responsible for drafting the first carbon plan after convening at least three stakeholder meetings in the run-up to the release of that draft plan on May 16th. Further, the final carbon plan must be completed by December 2022 and will be revisited every two years. To date, Duke has already conducted the three stakeholder meetings, met with some concerns by NCSEA and some of our partners, including abstaining from addressing or discussing topics like transmission planning and modeling, and the consideration of alternative market structures like RTOs. Further, the utility has not shared additional data on information related to the development of the plan, leading to uncertainty around the future for offshore wind, despite the upcoming lease auction for the Wilmington East wind energy area. In addition, without any additional insight into the plan details, interveners will only have 60 days to react and conduct their own modeling to respond before the July 15th deadline. For more information on the carbon plan process, I'll include a link in today's show notes. And lastly, a quick reminder about a few events on the horizon. On April 26th and 27th, our partners at the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center and NC State University will be convening the annual State Energy Conference back in person again on campus at the McKimmon Center in Raleigh. The conference itself will feature tracks and panels on topics like commercial, industrial, and governmental buildings, clean transportation, residential homes, renewable energy, and utilities and infrastructure. And on an exciting note, we'll be featuring a live version of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast on stage as a keynote plenary, where we'll be talking with energy reporters about trending topics across the industry. 
we'll be featuring Catherine Morehouse of Politico, Elizabeth Utz of Energy News Network, and David Borax of WFAE out of Charlotte. For more information on the conference, visit ncenergyconference.com. And coming up, for our listeners in the western part of the state, NCSEA is hosting our Clean Energy in the Mountains event at Highland Brewing Company in Asheville, where the topic of conversation will be focused on HB 951 and the preceding implementation efforts. We'll be featuring a panel of expert speakers, followed by roundtable conversations to directly engage in the conversation around each of the provisions in the bill. And of course, we'll have plenty of time set aside to meet and network with fellow attendees. More information will be included in a link in the show notes. Okay, on to the show. On today's episode, I'm so excited to feature someone who I've had the chance to interact with and engage with in various capacities over the years and follow his excellent reporting within the clean energy space, especially on the topic of energy storage. In today's episode, he and I talk about his time in North Carolina, his own professional growth and development as a reporter, and the challenges of the journalism industry, along with the exciting trends he's tracking now as the industry continues to grow at breakneck speeds. Okay, and with that, let's just get into today's episode. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our guest today serves as a senior reporter at Canary Media, where he reports on the rise of clean energy. He worked at Green Tech Media for nearly five years. Before that, he reported for City Lab at the Atlantic and conducted grant-funded freelance journalism on climate impacts in Bangladesh. His stories have also appeared in The Guardian, HuffPost, Al Jazeera America, and more. He graduated from Duke University and now calls Los Angeles his home. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Julian Spector to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Julian, welcome to the pod. I'm, I'm excited to be here. This, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Let's just jump right on into it. Part of the, the focus of our show here today is featuring you know notable energy alumni from the state of North Carolina or have some ties to our state. So as many of our listeners may or may not know, uh, you received your bachelor's degree in political science from Duke University right here in our backyard. So I'm really curious, how or was this time at Duke formative to your energy career as a journalist? It was actually incredibly formative. Um, I I majored in political science, but I also devoted most of my life to to the newspaper, the the Duke Chronicle, which at the time was putting out five print newspapers per week. Uh, so it, it seems just bonkers in, in retrospect. But we were in that office every every weeknight, um, reporting, editing, laying out an actual physical newspaper that had to be sent to the printers to to be on people's doorsteps the next morning. Uh, and I actually started as a health and science reporter, uh, which led to what I do now in, in two ways that I, I can think of it. One is kind of conceptually, uh, Duke has this huge medical campus, ton of scientific research happening, some really cutting edge, globally significant uh, work being done. But most of it doesn't have a whole lot of relevance to the, the lives of a college student, you know? And so I, I had to do the work of finding really interesting science and then figuring out how to contextualize it in a way that a college student might actually pick up and, and want to read and, and hopefully finish. Um, and that's basically the 
task that faces an energy reporter. You know, uh, most people don't really think about energy in their lives unless the lights go out or their car stops working. Um, so you you have to take what the the energy wonks think is very important, and then find a way to. Uh, make that accessible to someone who's just living their life and and doesn't really care. Uh, and then the second thing was I, I actually was a beat reporter covering the Nicholas School of the Environment. So uh, I did do my first clean energy reporting uh, here in North Carolina. And, and there were stories about, you know, they're putting solar panels on the, the roof of the Bryan Center, the Student Center. And um, I covered the transition of one of the 100-year-old campus steam plants that used to burn coal uh they used to they built it um so the roof was at the grade of the railroad line so the coal cars would actually roll onto the roof of this building which had to have these fortress like two and a half foot thick brick walls to support the weight of an entire coal car um gorgeous old old brick brick structure but they they switched that to burn natural gas to to heat the the water for steam for the campus and that I think single-handedly reduced 9% of university emissions at the time around 2010 or 2011. Um, so I was doing that kind of work and, and spending time hanging out around the Nicholas school. Um, and, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but nowadays covering the clean energy industry, um, the Nicholas school is one of the top programs out there. So I'm always running into folks who, who have a degree from there and are now off doing, really exciting work in businesses or utilities or research. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where it all started. And I think, uh, that was actually through Duke. I had initially crossed paths with you. You had come back for an event hosted by the, the Duke energy initiative a few years back and were brought in as a speaker for that. Uh, and so, you know, shout out to our friends over at the energy initiative, uh, who recently merged with the uh, Nicholas School for Environmental Policy Solutions over there at Duke. Um, but it's also, you know, I think it's it's important to mention, too, like the university's relationship with energy. Duke itself has made quite a transition over the past couple of years. We highlighted a little bit last year on the podcast as well that Duke participated in Duke Energy's Green Source Advantage program to procure, I believe, over 100 megawatts of solar off-site to help get closer to some of the carbon reduction goals that they've set as a university. So really fascinating to, to learn more about, you know, your experience on the education and reporting side, but also really fascinating to talk about their own experience with energy consumption and use on campus. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're major user of, of energy um, across the whole campus and, um, and yeah, the, the energy initiative you mentioned has done just great work um, bringing, bringing, the energy transition to, to a home on campus. Um, when I was a student, there really wasn't any talk of like, oh yeah, you, you could have a career in clean energy. Like you could go get a job that is doing something positive about climate change. You know, there's a lot of people going to be doctors and lawyers and bankers and consultants. And these days they, they have a whole energy uh, like job fair uh, now. And, you know, it's just, there's so many options and now also a lot of alums who are actively working in the space and coming back and, uh, it, you know, so I think that's very cool. That was maybe just getting started when I was on campus, but um, to, it's just a fundamentally different uh, level of recognition for, for the energy space now. So this is a, a quick aside. Is there 
Is there the level of rivalry between the Chronicle and the Daily Tar Heel as there is between the two universities? Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's a, a, a running uh, rivalry between those papers where, uh, I guess, uh, in the run-up to the Duke, you know, the, the famous kind of rivalry basketball match between the schools, the newspapers challenge each other too, and the, the school that loses has to run their newspaper in the other team's colors, which is, you know, a big a big affront to, to if you're used to the Duke blue and you have to run the UNC blue, like that's that's about the worst thing you could imagine as a as a newspaper uh, producer. And um, yeah, so they, that that uh, definitely filters down to the to the newspaper level. <laughs> uh, you know, timely and relevant, given uh, that it's Coach K's last season there uh, running the Duke basketball program. So. All right. So talking about post college career, you also worked for the NNO and a few other publications before landing at Green Tech Media. So. Let's talk about what what really drove you to focus on a career in energy journalism versus another field in journalism. Yeah, so I, I mean, I had a great time at the at the News and Observer. It's just such an excellent paper paper of record for for North Carolina politics, and um, just learned a ton from all the all the reporters and editors there. Um, it. it also gave me a sense of you know it's 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 hard out there for for a print paper business model. There should be a, a better a better way for society to to fund and 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 provide resources to this like vital journalistic function. But yeah, it's it's been tough out there for for the regional kind of newspapers. So I, I did end up going more in a digital direction with with subsequent jobs. Also did some some freelance. Uh, reporting uh, over in Bangladesh, uh, whereas at the time it felt like if you wanted to cover climate change, you had to travel around the world to some place that was, you know, on the front lines of of climate change. That seems preposterous now. All you have to do is just really look anywhere uh, in in the country or the world. But yeah, did did some work over there and looking at adaptation and and where the impacts were coming, and um, really got a. a sense um on the ground for some of the disparities where you know the the coastal delta communities in bangladesh that are most vulnerable to sea level rise and more intense storms um at the time at least did not have electricity did not have cars you know there there wasn't really any contribution to the problem of of global climate change and yet they were the ones uh that were were most exposed to it um, and so that really stuck with me. But uh, subsequently, I started getting more and more interested in writing about the energy dimensions of this, because um, there there is there's kind of two different approaches. You could take the environmental journalism approach of looking at how climate change affects specific landscapes and uh, and the the forces and power how how you know different different power centers. Uh, wish to use the landscape or, or avoid accountability for for their actions, stuff like that. And that's very important. But I, I got more and more excited about the the energy and transportation side, where it, it did feel like there was momentum towards some better way of doing things. But also back in 2014 or 2015, this was all still very early. There were a lot of open questions about which technologies actually would work and uh, which which business models and you know, what political or regulatory change needed to happen to, to let the good ideas do their thing. 
Um, so yeah, so I kind of had this trajectory from from being more of a climate change reporter to to really dialing in on the on the what's happening in the energy and the clean energy space specifically. And so I, I was at the the Atlantic Magazine City Lab uh, group for for a bit doing kind of like climate impacts and and adaptation and all that from a from a city angle and that was a, a lot of fun and from there I I just decided I wanted to go very deep on the clean energy side of things and I I'd been reading green tech media as a way of figuring out like what I should be writing about for more general audiences like it was usually okay, that's a really complicated thing. And I think I understand why it's important, but there's no way I could like pitch that to my editor right now. Uh, and then I just decided to to go for it when they had a job opening and and sort of dive head first into this world where you know, you're writing for the people working at the solar companies or running the solar companies or crafting the policy. So you really have to have to know stuff. Like you can't kind of just parrot a press release and uh, and put that out there and, and, and feel like you, you provided some value to someone. You gotta, you gotta stand up to scrutiny from people who are incredibly knowledgeable and, and actually doing stuff about it. And somehow, you know, five years went by and I, I, you know, I, I just learned so much and, um, had a great team there. And, and also this, the company had a whole research practice. So I was able to be in conversation with analysts who are just, know the ins and outs of solar and, and energy storage and all that. Um, and yeah, that, that really made me the reporter I am today. Uh, and, and also it sort of made me like an old, uh, old, old hand at this stuff because the, the, the industry has just moved so quickly that if you're around five or six years ago, um, now you're, you're like, it's like you've been here for, for ages. <laughs> We're, we're dinosaurs in the industry at this point. You're really ahead of the curve in, in terms of seeing the trends, in terms of reporting on what's going on in the industry. And there's a few things that you had mentioned um, in, in your comments just now that I, you know, I've seen in some of your recent reporting as kind of themes or trends, right? And you had mentioned traveling to, to Bangladesh. And I know you did some reporting last year where you had traveled over to Hawaii to cover the transition away from... Uh, you know, oil and gas to energy storage. And you've also done some really great coverage too on uh, recycled EV batteries and using those as grid assets. So talking about that interest in transportation and also traveling and reporting. So really fascinating, but we'll get to that in a minute. The other thing that I wanted to key into is you mentioned the world of print journalism, very, very tough. And, and you know, part maybe part of the reason why you've moved into the digital realm and, you know, that I think leads into the, the next question of Canary Media, which is where you are now. I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with Canary, but for those that aren't, do you mind just providing a short overview of the publication and, you know, what's the mission and what drives you over there? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, right now I, I report for Canary Media. We're at canarymedia.com. Uh, and we are a pretty young Less than a year old nonprofit newsroom, totally dedicated to independent reporting on the the global transition to clean energy. So the the way that came about was Green Tech Media, where I, I was for for the five years. About a year ago, uh, the corporate parent that owned it um, made a choice to shut down the news operation, and I'm 
not in a position to comment on the rationale for that, but they've made statements um, that you could look up, but um, they, they made that choice. And so we had a team of journalists who'd been really steeped in clean energy. We were looking at, at what was pretty much guaranteed to be the biggest year ever for, for investment and deployment of clean energy. Had a new president in the White House, was advocating for a massive ramp up of clean energy. And, you know, we didn't have to sit around thinking very long to decide we should probably keep reporting on this stuff. Um, so uh, we were able to basically keep the, the, the old news team together, bring in some new people as well, uh, and partnered with the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is a they're, they're, it's a think tank that's really action oriented uh, and very focused on this decisive decade, as they call it. What can we do now that might get us to to a world that's no more than say 1.5 degree Celsius warmer? And so, yeah, they they helped us get off the ground. And so now we're we're structured as an independent nonprofit with a, with an affiliation to RMI, and we're growing. We're hiring more journalists. We're putting out daily news online and a newsletter and podcasts and videos. And it's just really a whole multimedia experience. And it's it's just super fun. Like we, I've been covering startups for a long time. And to get to do that yourself while also doing journalism is, is just, it's a total blast. Um, there's like, I just can't speak highly enough of being able to kind of uh, team up and, and decide your own future collectively. Uh, and, you know, it turns out it is possible to have a media workplace that like respects its employees and treats people well. And, and you can like do good work that way. Like it, you, you can, you can foster a like positive environment and, and people respond well to it. I, I think myself along with many others, you know, were a little bit nervous last year that we were going to lose a lot of that, you know, institutional knowledge and reporting that had been going on around the clean energy space, especially like you had mentioned, right in the midst of the one of the largest years that we've had in clean energy and all the investment pouring in. So, so glad to see that, um, you know, everybody found a, a home at, at Canary Media and RMI, you know, such a visionary organization. And I and just, I, I can't say enough about them and the work that Amory and the rest of the team over there have been able to do. Um, so I appreciate you kind of laying that out for us. So, you know, as now as a, as a journalist in the clean tech field for a number of years and kind of watching the, the industry continue to evolve and, and grow, you've, you've got your finger on the pulse of current trends and cutting edge technologies. So we're still at the beginning of 2022 here. What are some of the top trends that you're covering and are interested in, and what has the potential to shape the future of the energy market this year and next? Yeah, wow. Well, there's there's honestly too many themes. Like it, it, the one of the main challenges of this work is trying to decide what to spend your day on because there's so many things happening simultaneously. I'll just name a bunch. So I, I think the progress in the the so-called hard to abate sectors has been a really uh, exciting story because it, it used to be the narrative was, you know, we know how to clean up the grid, we know how to electrify vehicles, but then there's all this stuff like steel making and cement and glass and you know fertilizer and and we just had no idea like five years ago no no one was saying okay that there's a clear pathway there, um, but surprisingly like a lot of those sectors have a pretty clear pathway now. Um, I think steel is a a notable example where 
if you talk to any of the major global steel companies, they're already building their their first prototype factories to do green steel. Um, and you need a supply of like carbon-free hydrogen that you can use to reduce your iron. And then you need a electric arc furnace powered by clean electricity. And But then you can do it. You can make steel without this huge carbon footprint. Um, and we know that and they know that and they're, they're already investing money to, to do that. Um, and similar things are happening in, in like shipping and aviation where it's, it's definitely, we, we can't say when things will be totally figured out, but, um, things, things I would say are, are further along than I would have expected a few years ago. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think hydrogen also a, a big storyline. Um, I used to be sort of skeptical of it because it it seemed like just out of the blue, everyone who happened to have uh, large investments in gas infrastructure started talking about hydrogen as the the way of the future. Um, and I was just reflexively like that that seems that seems a little suspicious. But there are certain use cases where it's pretty clear we're going to need it. Um, steel being one of them, but like long distance trucking or maybe um yeah shipping aviation there things like that um we we will need something like hydrogen uh and i would say it's very much an open question how relevant it is in the power sector some people argue it's the thing that allows us to get to a, a highly renewable grid other people will say that's a terrible waste of hydrogen and they're you know, many other solutions that could provide us with the electricity we need, but the, so focus your hydrogen on the tasks that only hydrogen can solve. Um, way too early to know exactly who's, who's right on that. But uh, I've become convinced that it's, it's not going away. I, I'd say it's like at least here for some critically important niches and potentially, um, potentially a bigger a bigger role in a, a future clean energy system. Then some other things, long duration storage is is finally getting built or getting contracts. This is the you know long sought after technology that can take your your wind and solar production that peaks and dips off and and turn it into a a more uh, reliable resource you can call up exactly when you need it. For a while, there's been a, a whole bunch of companies trying to invent new technologies for that. We haven't really seen them like take off at any sort of massive commercial scale yet, but we're finally starting to see commercial contracts getting signed where um, you know jurisdictions are saying, we think this will be needed and we want to buy some. What have you got? And an interesting dynamic there is actually some of the older technologies doing better than you might expect in this new sort of uh, framework. So um, I was just writing about California. We had the first kind of contract from California. A bunch of these local community uh, power providers wanted an eight-hour storage device, um, which is, you know, the, the rule of thumb in California previously has been Battery plants needed four hours uh, of duration so they could do their full power for four hours straight uh, to qualify for um, the regulatory requirement there. So this is you know twice twice the the duration or the runtime of what was normal for lithium ion battery uh, projects in the state. And uh, Rev Renewables is this developer that had been doing very 
you know, shorter competitive kind of battery plants and and making money on them. Uh, and they went and won this contract for a lithium ion battery, just going to run it for, for eight hours straight, uh, thereby beating all of the, the newfangled technologies that have been making the case that, you know, lithium ion, it, it's not good enough. It doesn't serve our, our needs once we, once we're trying to really um, get into these upper levels of renewable adoption. So that was very interesting. I, I also wrote about um, pumped hydro storage, potentially making a comeback in these new grid conditions. Um, that's the very old technology that you can store energy by using electricity to pump water up uh, up an incline and then storing it there in a reservoir. And then when you need the power, you have it roll back down and, and generate electricity. And that's 95% of grid storage in the US today. Despite all the headlines about batteries being on the up and up, uh, there's still just inconsequential compared to to what what the pumped storage does for the grid and so now there's the, the problem is no one's built a new one in like 30 years um for for various reasons but you know they're a big infrastructure undertaking and they also involve water which involves environmental reviews but there's a new crop that are are not even touching existing rivers they're really just digging two artificial reservoirs at different elevations and running a pipe between them. So that holds the potential to be much more palatable in an era where we, you know, care about not devastating river e- ecosystems. Then the question is just, can the market figure out a way to, to contract for that kind of power? Because no one's done a, a new contract for an independently developed pumped hydro plant in, in ages. So yeah, so, so as far as Thebes, what have I got? We got the the uh, surprising progress to the, the hard to decarbonize sectors. We've got green hydrogen taking on more substance. Uh, we've got longer duration storage, not necessarily from from the new brand new technologies, but uh, at least more more actual market movement there. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it at that. But you know, check canarymedia.com for for more uh, more of these good themes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious with the uh, the eight hour storage. Is that is that just a result of building bigger batteries and programming them to discharge over a longer period of time? So it's, um, I think their win was a factor of batteries being a known entity. And so, you know, the conventional wisdom was that lithium ion wouldn't be competitive at that level because uh, you're essentially just stacking up more and more of the same batteries to just extend the the duration whereas other technologies you can add to the duration uh more cheaply like if you're storing energy in the in the hydro just the size of your reservoir is is you know a, a measure of how how long you can generate power and it's a lot easier to just build a bigger reservoir and fill more water in you know than to like stack a bunch of batteries uh from from a cost perspective um, but what, what the developer was able to show to the people evaluating these bids is, you know, you can trust us. We have years of runtime with the same technology. We have a mature supply chain with warranties and things like that. Um, so, you know, here's what it's going to cost you, but you can trust this will actually happen and it'll work. Uh, and do you want to take a chance on a new technology that can't, you know, say that as strongly as we can? Mm, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So as as our listeners can probably hear, there's a lot of passion um, 
behind your voice for storage technologies, and you've you've reported on it quite extensively. Uh, and I would say you're one of the go-to journalists and leading experts on energy storage trends and news. What what really led you? And I don't want to I don't want to pigeonhole you into exclusively focusing on energy storage because I know you cover a lot of others other areas outside of that. But what led to that sort of focus on energy storage? There's a very simple answer, which was uh, my first day in the office at Green Tech Media. Um, my boss, who was Stephen Lacey, the reporter and now podcaster, um, basically said, "Hey, uh, we want you to focus on energy storage." And that was that was how it happened. <laughs> so um, I I did not come in expecting to do that. Like I kind of I, I knew of battery storage uh, from reading GTM before I worked there, and it just seemed so far away from commercial relevance at the time. Like the the first couple years, really nothing was happening, and most of the stories had to be very uh, future looking. Of like, well. If we changed some longstanding market rules, then this technology that we think is very cool could be paid to do valuable things. Uh, is is like the argument the storage folks would make, and um, doesn't make for like the most compelling narratives. Uh, but you know, it does provide a crucial service of this uh, flexibility between when electricity is produced and when it's consumed, which we need absolutely going forward in a, in a clean energy world. So yeah, so I'm, I'm grateful that I was randomly assigned to, to cover that area because it, it does only get more and more important and a lot more interesting. It's like so much more interesting now, uh, almost to the point that the, I mean, just basic battery projects are, are, are almost boring now, you know, like a, a couple of years ago, if someone was building a hundred megawatt, battery plant like that was a huge deal and every one of those would be deserving of a headline and and now it's kind of like yeah there's another one there's another one uh they kind of look the same and do the same things that uh, it's it, it makes it a challenge for for finding a a, a narrative hook for it yeah and in a previous role of mine i was i was working with a a large sort of battery integrator and it seemed like every single day in the industry right you could write a new headline that says world's largest battery contract signed and you would be writing a new story with that title every single day um and so it's it is really fascinating i think to your point seeing the new use cases that are coming about with energy storage um especially in like various sectors like you're seeing it in uh like mining operations overseas or in other like very unique island operations as well we just briefly hit on earlier, you covered Hawaii and they're transitioning into that energy storage market as a way to cover their grid. And and let the record show that Stephen Lacey asked and Julian has more than delivered on energy storage. And this whole time, I thought there was this whole elaborate scheme behind the scenes there and how energy storage came about. Um, so that's that's a really great sort of origin story for uh, for Julian's coverage of energy storage. I appreciate that. So uh, you, you track news all over the country in the world. And are there certain topics that you're specifically keeping a tab on in the Southeast? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's a hugely important region. Um, I think the, you know, dynamic there, uh, that, that kind of defines the energy landscape is these, these big, you know, monopoly utilities that 
control the grid and the generation and and have their centralized planning for for the future um with you know a, another contingent of more independent uh solar developers and and folks who who want little more competitive elements into the, into the grid. And so, I mean, I, I, one of the key storylines there that I think is, is quite fascinating is uh, all these utilities have committed to zero carbon or net zero goals for mid-century. They're also almost all of them, if not all of them actively stating they want to build a, a rather large amount of new natural gas plants. And you know, and there's generally, I think now they're they're across the board pretty open to building more solar. And like Georgia Power recently announced some of their their planning, and it's like uh, doubling their solar, uh, shutting down coal. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's the next kind of tension uh, to watch for the region is you know are those gas plants actually necessary? Like there's almost no large scale battery uh, development happening in the region. And so have you really tried all the options for capacity in the hours that you need? Uh, or is, is the gas uh, kind of a, a reflexive turn to the, the comfortable and familiar thing? Because, you know, we've got other states where large scale batteries are actively serving peak demand and just they're, they're just another part of the grid on par with all the other plants, power plants out there. And then there's states that just haven't built any. So they, they view it as kind of uh, scary or, or unproven or experimental or something. I mean, Duke Energy is interesting because they have been testing energy storage technology pretty extensively and, and for a long time. And I, I haven't seen it really lead to like anything like mass adoption, but they have done some some cool individual projects like um, they, they took a kind of outpost in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park off the grid, um, because it was, it was so hard to, you know, do upkeep for this single power line running through miles and miles of wilderness. And so they cut the cord and literally helicoptered in a, a kind of advanced zinc battery to, to support a, a little solar microgrid there. And I think that's very cool. Like that's a creative use of new technology to, to serve a very specific mission. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's always the question of do, do you, after you do all the R&D, does that turn into real projects or does that just uh, create new R&D questions that you then spend more time uh, evaluating? But yeah, I think the other interesting thing, I mean, in North Carolina specifically is the uh, recent tradition of like actual bipartisan energy policy that that advances the state towards a, a cleaner system, and especially when the the national discourse is that you know clean energy is is framed as a super divisive partisan divide or chasm that you know can't be crossed. I think at the local and state level, that's absolutely not the case. And North Carolina seems like a pretty good example of that. I mean, you're you're probably more steeped in the the legislative back and forth uh, than I am, but you know, it, even if your your policy doesn't do everything that the clean energy advocates want it to do, would you say it's notable to have both parties coming together with industry and and saying like, hey, we want we want to have a lower carbon grid in the future? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think 
a lot of what your comments you were just mentioning, you've you've really outlined the roadmap of a lot of the uh, the Squeaky Queen podcast episodes we've had over the past six months. So, um, you know, you you specifically mentioned Duke Energy and uh, pilots with energy storage, and we actually featured them on an episode um, a few months back talking about some of those projects. But but to your point, to your question, um, it is you know I think it is really notable that in a a very purple state like North Carolina and having that split between the General Assembly that's Republican controlled and a Democratic governor to have all of those entities come together and reach uh, a negotiation uh, agreement like House Bill 951 that was passed last year to put in place the first sort of carbon standards in the Southeast, I think is really significant. Now, of course, there are a lot of omissions associated with that we didn't see any sort of major provisions associated with low and moderate income programs. Um, and, and you know, really, it's, it's now down to the rubber meeting the road because a lot of what that bill had stated was, was putting the power back into the Utilities Commission's hand to determine how a lot of these provisions actually get implemented. So we're right now in the midst of the carbon planning process here in North Carolina. We also had kicked off a docket related to performance-based regulations. There are going to be numerous others that open up related to competitive procurement. So the writing is still out. The writing's still on the wall in terms of what all of this ends up meaning for North Carolina. Um, but we, I, I just mentioned the, some of those carbon targets and, you know, Duke itself has outlined vision for carbon neutrality. And now we have um, actual stated dates through legislation mandates um, that establish carbon goals for the utility. So, you know, and, and I know the other piece that I didn't mention, too, is the, the utility here had uh, introduced their plans, their integrated resource plans back in 2020, where they modeled a variety of different scenarios. Some, to your point, there was a lot of natural gas build out. Others had more, um, you were leaning more towards the renewable side, but still a fairly insignificant amount compared to other parts of the country. So I'm, I'm curious, do some of these goals like carbon neutrality by dates like 2050 seem reasonably attainable? And what role does energy storage in reaching those types of goals, even outside of the conversation around Duke? I know a lot of other utilities have set carbon neutrality goals as well. Yeah, I mean I think I think they're definitely achievable. Like I don't I don't think all these utilities would would put themselves out there and tell their shareholders they're going to do this and kind of uh you know, just stake their reputation on it if they thought it was absolutely impossible. Um that said, we we still don't really know what the what the end result looks like. Um there's definitely going to be a lot more wind and and a lot more solar and you know something to kind of balance balance it uh, and i mean north carolina's got a lot of nuclear uh capacity already and um you know so that's great dependable carbon free uh power production there um yeah i mean i think the the empirical trend we've seen throughout the the uptake in clean energy of the last decade or two is people underestimating how quickly the, the battery you know resources can arrive and, and what their what their market reach will be and you know all the supposedly smartest forecasters were just totally caught off guard by by how quickly it came so yeah i think like 
you know, we don't, we can't read the future exactly, but definitely recent history suggests that betting against uh, those forces is a, is a losing bet. I think a similar thing will happen with electric vehicles too, is, you know, people, people will be like, yeah, that'll be, it's not going anywhere. No one really wants it. It's too expensive. It's annoying. We don't, it's, it's just total fail. It's never going to take off. And then, you know, pretty soon every major car company is saying, yeah, we're going to just switch to that. And, you know, we, we haven't seen the, the uptake totally spike in the u.s yet but uh give it a couple years when they're cheaper than the equivalent gas car and let you like power your house in an outage and uh run a tailgate uh, by plugging in all your stuff to the your you know car battery like it's going to be a whole whole different world there um but yeah so i think with the utility planning you know, one key element is just that you're actually examining all the all the available options. If you're running a model and your model doesn't have all the technologies that you could be tapping to to achieve a clean grid, that's a problem. You know, you're you're gonna default to the stuff you know at the exclusion of other things that could work. Um, and then I I think there is this idea of trying to trying to do least regrets or no regrets investment um which you know speaking of purple purple state clean energy policy Arizona of all places came out strong for for that line of thinking uh, several years ago where the the state you know utility regulators put a moratorium on new gas power plants um said the they wouldn't let the utilities build anymore because uh from a conservative principle they, they were seeing so much change in the in the energy market and the technologies available that they thought it would be malpractice to saddle the ratepayers with uh, the cost of a of a forty year gas plant investment at a time where you know maybe in a few years we realize that's that's a totally unnecessary investment because of the way the the market's changing. Like no one, no one really expected that to come out of Arizona, but haven't seen other states replicate that approach. Uh, so you know. We we do though have plenty of examples of like uh, commissioners who approved uh, shiny new modern coal plants in like the early 2010s, and now those are already uneconomic, and yet the utilities that own them are trying to keep them going for decades more so they can get their payoff. Um, so like that should be a huge a huge lesson and <laughs> warning side if you're trying to evaluate uh, what to do in the next few years. Yeah, that's, you know, honestly, that the same sort of thought crosses my mind. You know, a big provision associated with HB 951 was coal securitization. Are we going to have to go through that same process with, with natural gas build out if we build out a huge fleet of plants that six years from now are are deemed, um, you know, outdated because it, we're we still are far enough away from our carbon goals that we need to be making much more significant investments in clean energy. So I think that's uh, a bigger question to be seen. And then, you know, just uh, in the interest of time, I'll ask you one more question, just kind of uh, given the timeliness of this, uh, we're, we're on the cusp of one year removed from the Texas blackouts um, and there's there's been a lot of mixed messaging over the past year, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more coming out uh, here shortly related to the reasons for that blackout and potential solutions moving forward. So from your perspective, does storage pose a reasonable out to prevent issues like what we saw happen in 2021? 
Interesting. Okay, yeah. So storage, I think if you owned a storage plant in the Texas uh, winter storm last year, you could have made a lot of money once um and then you would have discharged all your energy and if you wanted to refill that battery you'd be competing uh with everyone else trying to get uh the insufficient supply of electricity and and you know so i yeah current current storage technology would not have really made a dent in the in the statewide problem they could have really made a, a positive contribution to their, their owner's, you know, business plan. Um, but that's a, that's a, a case where, you know, you gotta, you gotta think of what would we do in a, in a highly clean energy grid if there's this multi-day extreme weather event. Um, certainly lithium ion batteries, not yet cost-effective on that kind of scale. So you can't really just load up batteries and think that's going to be enough. Um, I mean, uh, it, it was certainly a lesson that thinking of natural gas as uh, a quote unquote reliable resource, the way it's often talked about of, you know, we need the gas that's reliable, you know, well, the gas failed at a huge scale and, um, you know, catastrophically for, for the people of Texas. So yeah, I think, I think the lesson there is you gotta, gotta actually pay attention to resilience. This is one of those things where these extreme events keep happening and then for a little bit everyone says you know we really care about resilience and then when it comes time to actually spend money for resilience almost no one does like it's still really not uh, a thing that uh, many jurisdictions invest in even when they've been hit by this stuff um but i think that is slowly starting to change i mean at least california is finally building out more microgrids um because they have a tendency to shut off the grid power when when it's fire conditions and so you need some other source of power if you're a community in the in that region um and so some of those things are getting built and yeah i think i think uh, the texas shows you you definitely want a suite of technologies because being overly dependent on any one point of failure is is a big risk but yeah i i think it's it's a, it's a case where, yeah, fuel diversity, like maybe maybe that is a case where some sort of hydrogen power plant setup could be useful. You, you could have underground storage of hydrogen and there's some of these like underground caverns and uh, have that as a fallback plan if you need it. Maybe the, well, it's hard to imagine anyone building new nuclear in, in the competitive market of Texas, but you know, the, there's going to there's gonna need to be uh, some some hard thinking about um, you know, what, what mix of technologies gets you to full reliability in the face of, of like a week of, of super cold weather. Well, I always, uh, appreciate your, your pragmatic perspective, right? It, you could have said, well, we could just build out all storage and, and solar. And that would have been the answer, right? I, I, I will say, yeah, I, I think a universal rule I've learned in my time of reporting. Well, <laughs> the, the, the universal rule is there's no universal rules. Um, uh, anytime someone says, you know, my preferred technology or my preferred solution is like the only thing we're going to need. Um, I find that always wrong. Um, it's very complicated out there and different places have different needs and different resources. And, um, you know, just to, to assume that you have something figured out for every place, for every possible scenario for decades to come, 
is is really a uh, really high standard that I, I haven't found anyone who's that smart or clairvoyant yet. <laughs> well, um, and you know, the other things that I think you, you raised as important that are going to continue to be a part of the conversations, especially around policy and, and regulatory issues are our resiliency, right? And how do you value or compensate for resiliency? And I think there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn there um, for like ancillary services, other benefits that storage brings to the grid. And I know that that's been an ongoing conversation in various parts of the country is you know, how do we compensate for all of these like tangential benefits associated with some of these new technologies that are coming about? Um, and I'm sure something that you've covered a lot and will probably continue to cover, right, is like there are all these benefits that yeah, at its face value you don't necessarily see or factor in. But w- like what, what's the price that you put on preventing a blackout and keeping, you know, keeping people alive when there's a major storm that rolls through? Um, I don't have the answer to that question. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks that have maybe many different answers to that question. But uh, to avoid us walking down that rabbit hole, um, I will, you know, I'll just, I'll just say, Julian, it's been a real pleasure getting a chance to to talk to you today and talk more about the reporting that you're doing. And uh, so glad to hear, you know, that you know Canary Media is doing so well and continuing to prosper and grow in this time of uh, of of just you know, unprecedented growth for the industry as a whole. So I really appreciated your time. And uh, thank you again for coming on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Well, uh, it's fun for me to be on the receiving end of the questions. And you had just some excellent questions really kicked off a fun and hopefully nourishing conversation. So thanks for having me on. My key takeaway from today's episode is the role that clean energy plays in these traditionally viewed as hard to decarbonize sectors of the economy, from heavy shipping to manufacturing with products like steel. As the clean energy industry has grown up and companies look for ways to offer products produced in lower emitting fashions, new clean energy startups and mature companies are coming to the table with innovative new ideas for previously niche sectors of the economy. It'll be fascinating to see how each of these sectors embraces and utilizes these new technologies to deliver on the demand from customers, shareholders, and regulatory requirements. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 67 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.